Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Our pride can cut into a variety of different directions, and it takes away the humility that we are called to have because of Christ and before each other. Pride has no place in the life of a Christian. That's why Jesus, on the very night he was betrayed, I mean, he could have done this lesson any time in the three and a half years with the disciples. Read the Gospels and you see he showed servanthood to the disciples. But on the very night that he was betrayed, he, the master, got down and washed the stinking feet of those disciples. In his letter, John warns the believers against pride, the continual inner focus and reliance on self. Mentally placing yourself in a position of superiority or boasting about your giftedness has no place in the life of a believer. Pastor David teaches that pride is arrogance and vanity. It presumes you can direct your life independently and you don't need God. God grieves your foolishness and you miss out on a relationship with Him. Instead, you're called to humility, submission to God, and service in the body. Now here's Pastor David in the book of 1 John chapter 2 as he continues his message, Abiding in Christ. every day that they're excluding God and the purposes and the plans of God. If we have that kind of an attachment to the things of this world where God is excluded, then the fullness of the attachment that you should have, that you and I both should have for the Father, it cannot and it will not be in us. They cannot coexist. God won't allow it. And this is where I want to bring you back to that statement that I was trying to drive home earlier. Guys, he's speaking to believers. He's not going out to the people on the street and says, hey, you need to give up of the things of the world and you need to come and you need to love Jesus. No, he's speaking to you and I as believers who testify, who proclaim, I love Jesus. Man, I've given my heart and life to Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And John comes up to us just like he would come up to us, just singularly and purposefully and says, you know what? If you love the world as much as you do, the love of the Father is probably not even in you. Wow. When writing about this whole issue, even James, James uses two extremes. James, in James chapter 4, he says, friendship with this world is hatred toward God. So he even, instead of saying agape, no, James even brings it, hey, you know what? If, if, if you're even so lightly attached to this world, then that's hatred toward God. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty serious. 
You know, even as I was studying this over the last, gosh, several weeks as we've been in John, and I'm always reading ahead and kind of thinking what direction, praying, Lord, what direction. I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, okay, okay, I know, okay. In, in this area, in that area, man, I don't agape that part of the world. I know I don't agape that. Man, I'm not committed to that. And then all of a sudden, this passage in James came to me. He says, yeah, but, uh, you know, how's, how's your friendship with that part of the world? Are you hanging out? in there? When he says, you hanging out with them, you spend a lot of time with that, then really you're showing by your life a hatred to the things of God. That stepped on my toes, kind of pierced my heart, more than a few. Again, very seriously, particularly when we look at what John was saying earlier on over in chapter one about that whole idea of fellowship. Remember the, the koinonia, that, that commitment, that living life together. And first of all, you know, we look at that and he says, man, we have fellowship with God. We want you to have fellowship with God. John says that's one of the reasons why we're writing this so that you can have fellowship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, man, if, if your fellowship, if your koinonia is actually with the things of this world, you're not gonna have that fellowship. You're not gonna have that koinonia with God that God really desires to have with you. God's not gonna do it because first of all, the thing we know is that our God is a jealous God. All you got to do is go back to the, the Ten Commandments and, man, don't make any graven images. Don't bow down before any idols because our God is a jealous God. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Do you think God's going to hang around and fellowship with us when we're fellowshipping with the things and the attitudes of, of this world? I don't think so. Secondly, we know that our God is a holy God. Again, he is a holy God, and the word tells us multiple times that he does not, he will not abide, even as John says in the first chapter, he will not abide with darkness. But we also know in the Old Testament, man, he's holy. Anyone who approaches him has to be holy over and over. All through the word of God speaks of the holiness of God. And so he cannot be, and he will not be, in communion with those kinds of things. The only way that God is in communion with the fallen culture that's called humanity is because he's in communion with those who are washed in the blood of Christ. We have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And we talked about that several weeks ago, about, uh, again, our sanctification, the position that we are in before God. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. So our relationship with God is sealed. But what John is talking here and what I'm trying to get across here for us is that that fellowship, that ongoing growth in, in closeness with God, that suddenly that fellowship is divided, it's separated out because we're allowing something else into that place that God says, no, that's mine. That's mine and mine alone. Thirdly, God won't have fellowship with, with that darkness, with the wickedness or with the things of this world. That's what I'm trying to say. He won't have fellowship with the things of this world because he knows that in our lives, when we have fellowship with the world, it brings about a divided focus and a divided loyalty. 
And back on the Sermon of the Mountain, Matthew chapter 16, the Lord himself says, nobody can serve two masters. For either you're gonna hate the one and love the other, or else you're gonna be loyal to the one and despise the other. And he's speaking about our fellowship with him. Mammon's a good word. We use it all the time. I know this week I've used it about 12 times in casual conversation. No, we, we don't use mammon. What, what does it mean? I mean, we, we look, actually, mammon was a Syriac word that was actually the name of one of their gods or one of their idols. He was worshiped as the god of riches. Wow. How many people today worship the god of riches? Oh, I know my neighbor down there, man. He's always, and this guy over here. But let's let's bring it home. Let's bring it to the church. How many within the body of Christ still strive after riches and strive after riches, strive after those things that, that again, they perish with their use. And once we leave this place, they're of absolutely no value. Striving more after riches than striving after the things of the kingdom of God. Albert Barnes, a Bible commentator, says that it is not known that the Jews ever formally worshipped the idol mammon, but they used the word mammon to denote wealth. Oh, he has great mammon, you know. Uh, So they, they use that word there. The meaning is you cannot serve the true God and at the same time be supremely engaged in obtaining the riches of this world. You can do both. Now, a uh, sidebar here, caveat, a, a pause, no extra charge. There are rich people that are in the kingdom of God. There are people of great wealth that serve the Lord tremendously and they have a spirit of generosity. I understand that totally. But by and large, the greatest portion, if they are striving for wealth, they are going to leave the things of the Lord to the side. Uh, I think it was Pastor Leo and I were talking just the other night about this whole idea of compromise. You know, if I'm striving for things of this world, if I'm really going to strive for the things of this world, if I'm going to obtain them, I'm going to have to compromise. I'm going to compromise my testimony. I'm going to compromise my my witness, my devotion to the Lord. If I'm striving after things of this world, the world will not let you achieve that and still have the fullness of devotion. And again, that's with the caveat, that's with the, the, the added thing that I know that there are some. But by and large, I guarantee you that you will compromise your walk with the Lord if you are pursuing the things of this world. You cannot serve God and mammon. Back to 1 John 2. In verse 16, John actually goes a little bit deeper with his own explanation of how this works. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of this world. And the world's passing away. And the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So he speaks of these three areas of concern. 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. First of all, as he speaks of the lust, both of the flesh and of the eyes, lust is the Greek word epithymia, epithymia, epithymia. And it has the meaning of unharnessed and out of control. Unharnessed, out of control. Kittle's Theological Dictionary tells us that the root cause of that kind of a desire is actually disobedience. Not just irrationality, but disobedience. And it's the evil that's within epithymia. It's that kind of a desire is a manifestation of sin. Under the prohibition of God's law, Kittle continues, it discloses, it shows our carnality and our apostasy from God and also our subjection to wrath. In James, it's the root of individual sins. While in John, it arises out of the world and it constitutes its nature and it perishes with it. The lust of the world, man, it's gonna perish. The New Testament statements about epithymia belong to the message of repentance and self-denial. The only way to get away from that is through repentance and self-denial. Epithymia is impulse, it's lust, or it's anxious self-seeking. And it shows us what we really are. Even, and catch this from Kittles, even after reception of the Spirit, it remains a danger. So even as a believer, we can be prone to the things that lust brings. When John breaks it down, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, he's actually speaking of two differing but very related issues here. One could very easily translate the first part, the lust of the flesh, as those physical cravings, the physical cravings of, of, of men, women, it, it does not matter, just the physical cravings. It deals primarily with the out of control or out of proper balance of lives. Every fleshly appetite being catered to, being supplied in excess, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye, both of those incorporate the idea of inordinate or improper sexual or sensual desires, but neither one of them limit themselves to just sexual sin because it can go way beyond that. Related to the lust of the flesh, again, we look at the lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes, we move more toward the idea of our mental and emotional coveting, unbalanced desires of every type. From that, it brings about even jealousy, brings about that, yeah, that idea of coveting. It brings on greed. It brings on selfishness, man. When I've got the lust of the eyes, I want what you want. And I want to have it more than I want you to have it. And suddenly that, that's what lust does. It comes completely out of the range of, of propriety. It comes out of the range of, of constraint. It suddenly, it becomes the master. 
And that's why when it's a lust of the flesh, man, it can destroy lives totally as well as spirit. Lust of, of the eyes destroy mentally the focus, the concept. Many marriages, many jobs, many futures, many ministries have been destroyed just because of, of greed even. Just because of selfishness even. And, and that's even before we get to the abundance of the sexual sins that have gotten into areas of ministry and, and marriages and jobs and these kinds of things. It is so destructive because it's unharnessed and it just goes and does all and whatever it desires to do. Now, from both of those areas, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, there comes that, that, that third warning against the pride of life, the pride of life. Now, there's a lot of directions that this could go, but primarily it deals with the idea of personal or vain glory. My own personal glory. I'm just, man, I'm the, I'm the best thing God ever brought about, you know? And after God built me, he destroyed the mold. You know, ain't nobody like me. And some of you say, amen, hallelujah, there is not. Uh, <laughs> But it's, it's that idea, that inner focus, that, that continual, continual, continual inner focus, mentally placing yourself in a superior place, this superior status of some sort, either because of your giftedness, and yeah, even spiritual giftedness. We can have pride in that. And you don't think that there's not a successful pastor around that doesn't deal with pride and I yeah and successful you got a congregation of 300 or you got a congregation of two hey man look what I've done well that's the quickest way to lose it all okay let's see what you can do God says and there, there it goes giftedness and even spiritual giftedness, putting ourselves in that place, uh, lifting ourselves up because of our other kinds of abilities or even our possessions or even our appearance. But what about pride of nationality? What about pride of ethnicity? You see, our pride can cut into a variety of different directions and it takes away the humility that we are called to have because of Christ and before each other. Pride has no place in the life of a Christian. That's why Jesus, on the very night he was betrayed, I mean, he could have done this lesson any time in the three and a half years with the disciples. Read the Gospels and you see he showed servanthood to the disciples. But on the very night that he was betrayed, he, the master, got down and washed the stinking feet of those disciples. Demonstrating to them the reality that, you know, if, if I, the master, can wash your feet, how ought you to be to each other? Within the body of Christ, pride should not exist. Should not exist. John Peter Lang tells us in classical Greek, this pride of life signified arrogance and vaunting with a secondary idea of, catch this, untruthfulness. 
Because let's face it, if we start getting into pride, suddenly we start boosting ourselves a whole lot more than, than what we are, you know? So untruthfulness starts moving in. And then he says, it's, it's a boasting about one's rank or, or even one's wealth. He goes on to say, in James, in the book of James, it evidently denotes the outbreaks of that arrogance, which overlooks the vanity and the nothingness of earthly happiness. What he's saying there is we move into pride because suddenly it makes us feel really good. And that, how empty that is. How empty that vanity has. How, how absolutely nothing. That's like building you know, a, a platform on cotton candy. You know? It's just not going to stand. It's, it's like building that house on sand. There's just no foundation on there because we're building it out of our own pride, out of our own boasting. He said again, uh, the braggart, some may smile at, but the haughty man can become injurious. Another commentator believes that maybe John had in mind when he speaks of the pride of life about the hollow arrogance that presumes that it can decide and direct their course of life without God. I don't need God in my life. I'm talented in this area, and I'm, I've got these kinds of possessions, and I've got this kind of stuff available. I don't need God in my life. How quickly those things can disappear. Some of you can testify to that fact, how quickly things of this life the things that we sometimes feel, man, that's what I'm standing on. That's, that's my foundation is my abilities here. This is my foundation, my, 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 my wealth or whatever it might be. And so, boom, how quickly those things can be taken from us. Pride declares that it can determine what it'll do, what it'll gain, what it'll achieve, achieve where it will go and what it will enjoy. And yet God, through it all, just says, shakes his hand, and I believe, sometimes I believe he, he laughs at our foolishness. And you know what? Sometimes I think that there's a tear in God's eyes because we rob the very opportunities that God wants to work in and through our lives because we've allowed these other things to come in. Pride is never conducive to and is actually set against the humility that's called for by the believer. The humility where we ought to be considering others above ourselves. And in all of these things, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, in all of these things, what we are craving for in the flesh, the lust, lusting for with our eyes, trying to maintain with our pride. But the fact is, is all of those things will burn. Every one of those things. The things that we lust for in the flesh, it's gonna burn. Things that we lust for it with the eye, it's gonna burn. The things that we take pride for in life, it's all gonna burn. In the very end, those things that are done for the kingdom is what's gonna last. Every one of these issues deal with something that is worldly, something that's temporary, and that's why John once again reminds him in verse 17 that the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 
Thanks for joining Pastor David today to study the letters of the Apostle John here on The Open Word. Though our program will come to an end today, your time in God's Word can continue uninterrupted. In fact, we encourage you to study today's passage on your own and ask the Holy Spirit to speak through what you read. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor David, you can find them at theopenword.com. We'd love to meet you too. If you're in the Casa Grande area, please join us Saturday, Sunday, or Wednesday for our weekly gatherings at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. You'll find service times and directions by clicking the church link at theopenword.com. Before our time is up with you today, we'd like to turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick request for you, our listener. Thanks, Chris. You know, as this ministry continues to grow and reach further into the community with the message of the gospel, I know the enemy wants to stop it. I also know that prayer is a big part of holding him back. Would you take time to pray for us every time you tune in to The Open Word? Pray too for our listeners, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who may have yet to place their faith in Jesus. This last category especially need prayer. It could be that the next message you hear may be the first time they're learning about the hope that's only found in Jesus. Please pray that their hearts will be open and that they'd make a decision to follow Jesus forever. Thank you for praying and thank you for being a listener to The Open Word. Make us more.